I greet you in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Lord. Our scripture lesson for the morning, Acts 15, describes the first major disagreement that happened in the early church. And we Methodists can relate to it because we have faced a major disagreement within the United Methodist Church in the past year. So, before I read our scriptures for the morning and present my message, let me share briefly about the current division uh, occurring within the United Methodist Church. And I have shared these thoughts with Pastor Jeff, and he is in agreement with them. The unity of the church is important. But as Adrian Rogers used to say, it is better to be divided by truth than united in error. There are a few vital beliefs that are non-negotiable. They are essential parts of our faith. They cannot and must not be compromised or distorted or diluted. One of these is the authority of Holy Scripture. That is the fundamental issue in the current division of the United Methodist Church. We believe that God inspired every word in this Bible and that this holy book is completely true and free of error. If we lose that anchor to the truth, we will be adrift in the uncertain tides of godless secularism. Thankfully, the division of, the, of Methodism in South Carolina is being accomplished, for the most part, with sensitivity and understanding on both sides. Before our decision was made here at Mount Horeb, several listening sessions were held, and all different points of view were heard respectfully. Bishop Holston expressed grief, but not animosity about the separation. And the South Carolina Annual Conference did not prevent churches like Mount Horeb from leaving. While we are saddened by the division within Methodism, we also feel joy in being part of a fellowship that does not argue about matters that the Bible makes clear. We are united in our understanding of the cross-centered gospel. We are confident that nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let us thank God that here at Mount Horeb and within the Global Methodist Church, the best is yet to be. Can I get an amen on that one? Yeah. <clears throat> the scripture for the morning is almost the entire 15th chapter of the book of Acts. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem and to see the apostles and the elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. 
And this news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city, from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated and let us pray. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken. Give us your word, Lord Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> Disagreements among people who supposedly love each other can be tough. Ask any police officer what are his or her toughest assignment, and they'll tell you, domestic dispute. Ask any married couple who've been married longer than a week. <laughs> if they got trouble during the first week, we got a whole different issue. But if they've been married longer than a week, and ask them 
if they always agree and never disagree? And they'll say, certainly not. Occasionally I attend a, a 25th anniversary celebration of a couple. And occasionally I'll hear this uh, couple stand up and with beatific smiles say, in all these years, we've never had a crossword. <laughs> I'm tempted to send them that sermon of mine online. Um, Ruth Graham, uh, uh, the wife of the late Billy Graham, used to say, if, if a husband and wife always agree on everything, one of them is expendable. Yes, yes. Disagreements can be creative or detrimental depending on the subject and how they are handled. The art of disagreeing without being disagreeable should be a Christian specialty. And husbands, husbands, before you question your wife's judgment, remember she chose you. In the year 50 A.D., the church was divided with one foot in Judaism and the other at the cross. The dispute was this. Does salvation consist simply of receiving the gift of grace earned by Christ on the cross? Or is it necessary that we also keep most of the Old Testament rules and regulations? Here's the question in modern terms. Is there something I must do in addition to repenting of my sin and trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord in order to be saved. For example, something in addition like tithing my income or teaching a Sunday school class or going on an overseas mission trip or making the ultimate sacrifice, chaperoning the junior highs on an overnight retreat. <laughs> All of these special efforts are wonderful ways of showing our gratitude to God for his love, but none of them will earn us a dime's worth of God's love. Our salvation is simply God's gift to us, paid for by Christ on the cross and received by faith. And that was the glorious resolution of the first disagreement, first major disagreement in the life of the church. Now let's consider that disagreement and learn from it lessons that we can apply to those occasions when we Christians disagree, as we will. First, note this. The church faced this dispute honestly, openly, and gracefully. On one side, you had Peter, Paul, Barnabas. On the other side, the party of the Pharisees, those who were fiercely attached to the Jewish heritage in the church. In verse 2, we, we, we read that it was a sharp dispute between the two sides. In verse 6, we're told there was much discussion. The Jewish Christians declared that the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Now, Jewish male babies were circumcised on, when they were eight days old. And the word circumcision became a catch-all word for obeying most of the Old Testament rules and regulations. The Jewish Christians were not arguing that Gentiles could not be saved. They were just insisting that in addition to faith, the Gentiles had to obey most of the Old Testament rules and regulations. Now on the other side, Peter stood up and said, wait a minute. 
God sent me to a Pharisee, to, to a Gentile named Cornelius. God sent me there. And Cornelius was uh, the centurion in the Roman army. And he and his house full of Gentiles heard me preach the gospel. And they responded to the gospel with faith. And God showed his blessing and approval by giving them the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter said this, God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. Evidently in the first days of Christianity, in those early years, when a person received the Holy Spirit, it came with very clear emotional and physical signs. For example, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon the early church, the non-believers thought that all those believers were drunk. They were obviously acting differently. That was the way the Holy Spirit brought about its presence, showed its presence in those early days of the faith. Today, the, co the coming of the Holy Spirit to a person is usually not so publicly visible. Oh, sure, there are some people who, when they experience the Holy Spirit, want to dance and shout, and that's good. But there are other people who, when they receive the Holy Spirit, experience just profound peace and calm. The main effects of the Holy Spirit coming into one's life is to graft one more firmly into Christ and to bring a power greater than one's own. Peter said that since the Old Testament rules could not save anybody, why burden those Gentiles with them? And St. Peter summarized his case with these words, we believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. So, this was the dispute, and both sides had ample opportunity to speak their peace. What's the lesson for us modern Christians? The first lesson. When Christians disagree, they should face the dispute honestly, openly, and graciously. No under-the-table deals, no threats, no power plays. Just honest, open, gracious sharing. That's lesson one. Here's the second lesson from that early dispute. Scripture was consulted. The president of the assembly was James, the half-brother of Jesus. And legend says that James spent so much time in prayer that his knees looked like the knees of camels. They were just padded from so much time he had spent on them. James was trusted by the assembly to hear both sides and then to declare God's verdict on the dispute. James based his decision squarely on Holy Scripture. He quoted both Amos and Isaiah, uh, two of the great prophets. 700 years earlier, God had predicted through the prophets that Gentiles would become Christians. Now, over the past 50 years, most of the divisions in the mainline denominations of America have been about the issue of the authority of Scripture. And the basic question is, it was and still is, is this book the inspired Word of God and therefore entirely true and free of error, or 
Is it just an ancient book that needs a whole lot of revision and updating and modernizing? There you have it. And when any church leaders think that they are wiser than the one who inspired the book, the church, their church is on a death spiral. If a seminary professor or a church committee believes that they have the authority to determine which parts of this book are useful and which are useless, that undermines our entire faith. All of us have opinions, some of them wiser than others. But what really matters is what God's Word says. And the more we read it and study it and meditate on it, the better we will understand God's will in times of controversy. I'm so thankful that there are defenders of biblical truth in America, not just from pulpits. God has called them from all walks of life, even from professional football. And that includes Hall of Fame coach Tony Dungy and Emmy Award-winning broadcaster James Brown. Just think of their audience on a typical Sunday afternoon in America, over 17 million people. And these two men say that the Bible is their playbook for life. And at a recent retreat at the Billy Graham Training Center in Asheville, Brown said, I just want to underscore the absolute veracity of the Bible. It is truly the inerrant, infallible Word of God. Dungy, the first black coach to win the Super Bowl, said that when a person submits to the authority of God's Word, then most decisions of life though sometimes difficult, are really not all that complicated. Dungy said, we Christians must talk with everybody, listen to everybody, and then speak biblical truth in a loving way, end of quote. So, lesson number two for modern Christians in times of controversy. Always consult the Bible before making important decisions. Here's the third truth we learned from the church fathers about how they made their momentous decision in the year 50 AD. The disputing disciples listened well to each other. Verse 12 tells us the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. Some time ago, a member of the royal family in, in uh, England was asked, what was the secret of the amazing popularity, not just in Great Britain, but worldwide, uh, popularity of the late Queen Elizabeth II? And this member of the royal family said, she knew how to listen. Listening is a necessary skill for Christians, but sometimes we don't do it well. Sometimes instead of really listening to an opposing point of view, we are mentally calculating what our rebuttal will be. One of the surest signs of love is to really listen well to another person. I wonder if God sent us a signal when he gave us two ears and one mouth, maybe. Lesson number three for modern Christians, listen well to opposing points of view. Here's the fourth and final truth that we learned from the church fathers. The disputing disciples agreed on the major issue and compromised on the secondary matters. They agreed there's only one path to God, 
It's through faith in God's Son who died on a cross for us and arose on Easter morning. To be saved, we need to know only one thing. We are sinners who need a Savior. And the Savior's name is Jesus. We are saved by Christ. Nothing less than Christ. Nothing more than Christ. In the words of a great hymn, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. James, the president of the church, made the final decision. He ruled that the Gentiles did not have to become Jews in order to become Christians. He declared we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. But then as a postscript, he called for compromise on several important but secondary issues. As a concession to the Jewish Christians, he instructed the church to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood, end of quote. The word blood is important there. Throughout the Bible, blood is associated with life, and life is a gift from God. And so this belief would prepare the world to understand that the precious blood of Jesus shed on the cross provides the gift of abundant and eternal life. Note also the prohibition against sexual immorality. My goodness, is this appropriate for today's world, especially America. It has been said that fidelity in marriage and celibacy in singleness is the only completely new virtue that Christianity gave to the world. James, the president of the assembly, placed the law of love right in the middle of this dispute. He was telling the Jewish Christians to be patient with the Gentiles who were not familiar with all of that Old Testament. And he was advising the Gentile Christians to be sensitive to those Jewish people who were brought up from childhood to honor the Old Testament. The lesson here for modern Christians, stand firm on the essentials of the faith, but be flexible on secondary matters. There was a Christian leader many centuries ago named uh, Meldinius, Meldinius, and he gave us some very helpful wisdom about how to handle differences. He said, in essentials, we must have unity. In non-essentials, we must have liberty. And in all things, we must have charity. As Rick Warren likes to say, God wants unity, not conformity. And we have a great example of that every Sunday morning at, at Mount Horeb. Right now as we worship here, you know that our brothers and sisters are over in the auditorium worshiping in a different style, contemporary, using a different style of music. And one is not better than the other. They meet different needs. And isn't it wonderful you can have both in the same church? And we both, sanctuary, auditorium, are together on the essentials. We worship the same Lord. We honor the same Bible. And we share together in the same ministry and mission. So we are together on the essentials. And we are different in style which just meets different needs of different folks. I thank God 
for showing us in Acts chapter 15 how the early church disagreed without being disagreeable. And this lesson is essential because modern Christians like us are going to disagree from time to time. I was blessed by two wonderful parents who almost never disagreed. Papa was a Methodist preacher and Mama was a gifted public school teacher. Uh, she grew up in a Presbyterian home and though she became a wonderful Methodist, she always retained a streak of Presbyterianism. I recall only one serious disagreement my parents had, and it was about observing the Sabbath day. Papa was really strict about the commandment, keep the Sabbath day holy. And he believed that you should not do anything that caused a person to be employed on Sundays. Now, the fact that he was employed on Sundays as a preacher, <laughs> I should have asked him about it. It did not occur to me at the time. Papa was strict about the commandment. I remember one Sunday afternoon, my 12-year-old friends and I were having a raucous football game in the front yard of the Methodist Parsonage, and Papa came out and said, Son, son, this is the Sabbath day. Would you and your friends take your game around to the backyard? And I said, Papa, isn't it the Sabbath day in the backyard too? <laughs> he didn't answer my question. The disagreement between Papa and Mama happened on a Saturday evening around the dinner table. They were thinking about the next day, Sabbath, what they were going to do. And, and Mama said, uh, dear, you know that little restaurant on the edge of town where they have cafeteria-style lunch? Many of our church members go there on Sundays and... I think we ought to go there tomorrow. <clears throat> Papa said, dear, uh, I don't think we should because I don't want to cause anybody to be employed on Sundays. And you know, a pastor and his family ought to set an example. So I don't think we ought to do that. Mama said, dear, uh, I have thought and prayed about this matter a good bit. And... Um, I want you to explain to me why it's less holy for several cooks at that restaurant to work on Sunday so that about 150 other people, mostly women, don't have to work in the kitchen on Sundays. Besides, she said, I get up early on Sundays, get these four children ready for Sunday school and church, and one of them is a baby, and then we all go, and I teach Sunday school, and I even play piano in another class from time to time. And then I put the baby in the nursery, and we all worship together. And by noon, I've put in a pretty full day. Yes, she said, I could stay at home with the baby. But I agree with you, dear, that it's important for the family to worship together. And then Mama capped off her presentation by quoting Scripture. She said, I remember that Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, and I think he meant the Sabbath was made for man and woman. Papa was a smart man, and he knew when to surrender. <laughs> and so we began to frequent that little restaurant most Sundays after worship. My parents didn't know it at the time, but they were modeling Acts 15. 
for us. They had an honest disagreement and they did it honestly, openly, and graciously around the dining room table. They consulted scripture, in fact, both of them quoted scripture, and they listened well to each other. And then they agreed on the main thing, the family worshiping together. And they compromised on the secondary matters. And I think God sent me here to tell us that we ought to go and do likewise. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Now I'm going to invite you to join me in a brief period of guided meditation with heads bowed and eyes closed as we seek to apply the message personally. First, take a few moments to consider some disagreement you have or had with another Christian, perhaps even a member of your family. Next, did you disagree honestly, openly, and graciously? And if the answer is no, perhaps a moment of repentance is in order. Next, did you consider the Holy Scriptures at all in dealing with this disagreement? Next, did you listen well and patiently to the other person or persons? Next, did you settle the most important issue in the disagreement and do some compromising on the secondary issues? And finally, was that disagreement resolved in a way the Lord would approve? Or do you need to return to it for a better resolution? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.